Well, good morning. Welcome to those joining us online and on site today. I am taller than Andrew, but I am not Zach either. Zach is taller and skinnier than even me. He'll be back with us next week, and uh, we look forward to his return. Glad he and Julie had a good time down in Mexico. I think it was their first time down there. So I'm looking forward to hearing great stories about that. Well, we are here today with our continued walk through Paul's letter that he wrote, most likely with his own hand, to this uh, church in Thessalonica. Now, this is a church, if you're not familiar, have been with us, you know that he started this church, that he deeply loved the brothers and sisters in this church. But then when persecution sort of started to ramp up in the city, he felt like he was sort of the, the, the main focus of that persecution. So he thought for the betterment of the church, he would, he would leave. And he fled all the way down. He actually got chased all the way down to Athens, where he writes this letter that he sends back to the Thessalonians. Now, as we think about these ideas of letters, like in, of all the books of the Bible we have in the New Testament, a large majority of them are letters, which is a bit of a lost art, isn't it, to this idea of a handwritten letter? It got me thinking this week, when was the last time that I actually sat down and put pen to paper and wrote a letter? You might be thinking about that right now. When was the last time you did that? It's probably been, I'm going to guess, for most of us, if at all, but it's been more than weeks. It may be counted in months. You maybe even count that in years. It's a bit of a lost art, isn't it, with the advent of email and video chatting that we have? But as I thought about the last time I wrote a letter, and I was drawn back to a, a season a number of years back when I was just newly married, and I worked at this place with a guy who was looking to get married, and he was engaged to his fiance, and they're about to get married, but she had a dream that she wanted to fulfill before they tied the knot, and it was to go teach English as a second language in Japan. And they thought, you know what, he didn't want to stand in her way of doing this, so he thought you should do it before we get married, in part because, remember, we're going back here to like the early 90s now when there was no internet, Back to the 90s, where communicating from, you know, from BC, I lived in BC at the time, from BC to Japan was not that easy. So they're going to have limited communication for an entire year that they're going to be part while they did this. But I thought we should do it because it's her dream and she's going to make good money. It'll help pay for the wedding. So you should go. Now, when she left, he really had two options on how to communicate. And those of us who are familiar with this season, you know what it's like. Back in the early 90s and before that, you had two options. One was the phone. But remember, if you called somebody, there was no such thing as unlimited phone plans for long distance back then, right? How much do you think a phone call, a five-minute phone call from Prince George, British Columbia to Japan would cost back in 1990? Any guesses? Uh, it's about $50 for a five-minute phone call. Totally different world we have now. So he thought, well, we're trying to save money for the wedding. We can't you know, make these phone calls all the time. The other option was to write a letter. And so they did that. They wrote letters. They scheduled a certain number of phone calls throughout the year, but they wrote letters. Now, here's the problem with letters. It took two and a half weeks for a letter to get from Prince George to Japan, and another two and a half weeks for it to get back. And so you'd have to be careful what you put in your letter, because if you ask questions like, where's the can opener, either you go buy a can opener because it's cheaper than the phone call, or you have to wait five weeks, and hopefully you got the snap-off can lids that you have. 
but they would write these letters, and, and he would write one that was at least once a week. And they tend to have a bit of a format to them. And, and the first part, he wouldn't go into great detail with me on this part, but he said, you know, the first part of these letters are the kind of the, the gushy, kind of lovey-dovey stuff. The stuff you just got to get out. I, I can't wait to see you. I, I'm counting the days on the calendar, every day that passes. I, I saw a cloud today, and it reminded me of you. Like, like these, that stuff, right? You got to get that personal stuff out of the way. But they kept these letters going because they wanted to share that, but also because of the second stuff, the, the second half of the letter, where they kind of got down to business, where they would share the highs and the lows of, of their work lives, their, their lives being apart, where they would share also things about topics they were trying to work on in their relationship. You see, they knew, even at this young age, they're about to get married, they knew they had, they had this wisdom to know that the time that they were spending apart was actually a threat to their relationship. The, the time they were spending apart was a threat to the love they had for each other unless they intentionally worked at it. Unless they intentionally tried to keep their relationship growing, to keep the love fresh, to keep the love alive. The idea here being, we are going to work on living for each other until we can live with each other. Does that make sense? They were going to work on living for each other until they could live with each other. And thus far in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, we've kind of covered that first half, that first that, that personal stuff, the expressions of love and appreciation. And Paul's been saying, I can't wait till I can see you guys again. I love you guys so much. I can't wait till I can see you again. That's the first half, the kind of chapter one through three that we've been covering so far. But today we get into the second half of the letter. Today we get into the second half where Paul kind of gets down to business a little bit. And if you want to follow along, we're going to be starting in chapter 4. Uh, you can find that on page five, uh, sorry, 957 of the Pew Bible, or the sermon notes are on the Pew portal there if you haven't got your own Bible with you. And as we get into the second half of the letter, Paul gets down to business. Because he knows that while they are apart, while they are apart from each other, where he's in Athens and they're in Thessalonica, while he knows that they are still on earth and Jesus has ascended into heaven, that while they're experiencing these physical gaps that are taking place, this is no time to idly just sit back. We can take advantage of these opportunities and we can continue to grow in our relationship with God and grow in our relationship with one another. And so as we get into the second half of the letter, Paul is encouraging them to live for Jesus until they can live with Jesus. And that's the second half of the letter, is to live for Jesus until you can live with Jesus. And as we start writing, we see that this change is, is very, very obvious, even in the opening words that he shares, as he signals a change in style and a change in purpose. And beginning with just verses 1 and 2 here, it says, So for other matters, change of focus, so for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instruct you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you, we urge you in Lord Jesus Christ's name to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of Jesus while I was with you. See, basically what he's saying to open up the letter here is he's saying, keep up the good work. As you are currently doing, keep on living for Jesus every day. Now this word to, to live, to live in a way that's pleasing to God, the word live there can also be understood and translated to continue to walk. And I actually prefer the translations that use the word walk instead of live, simply because they, I think they're more helpful to what Paul's trying to describe here. You see, isn't it true that you can live completely passively? Like, like you can be alive and still sit like a lump on a log 
and not do much. And technically, you could say that you are not living in one way, but you are alive. But to use the word walk, that is not a passive thing. To say walk means that there is activity taking place, that there is gradual progression towards a destination taking place. And so this idea of walking, I think, is helpful to understand what he's trying to get to here. Because the Christian life was not meant to be passive. The Christian life is not meant to be kind of a a one-and-done scenario where I, I, I prayed one prayer one time and I'm just going to sit back and wait till Jesus returns. It's not meant to be a passive, one-and-done kind of journey. The walk that we are to have with Christ is this ongoing journey as we grow in our identity with Christ. Does that make sense? So we're walking with Christ as we become more like Christ. Now, and this shapes how we view ourselves and how we relate to the world around us and how we understand ourselves. You see, a lot of you will know that uh, like Nadine is the coordinator of a, of a kind of a fun run. Every week there's this thing called Park Run that happens down in the River Valley. It's a five-kilometer run through the River Valley. It's, you know, it's a good community and it's timed, but it's a fun thing. Sometimes people come out and walk it. Lots of people come out and run it. Every Saturday at 9 a.m. we do this. Now, I go along more often than not to volunteer. But there are times that I'll run it. And I volunteer more than I run because I hate running. Right? And a lot of you can probably agree with me. You can probably appreciate this. I don't like to run. But I do it sometimes because Nadine likes to run. And so sometimes I will run with her. But as I'm running, I have this internal dialogue that's going, oh, time is going so slow. Like, when is this going to be over? I, I feel like I'm going to die. Like, have you ever ran? Okay, so... So you can understand some of this. But can I be honest with you? And don't tell Nadine. Don't, don't tell Nadine this. But I've been doing it for a while now. And I'm seeing improvement in my running. My time's improving. And, and my distance between when I have to take a, a bit of a walk break is, is improving. And the last time we were running, just a couple days ago, I had this internal dialogue that goes, I think I'm a runner. I hadn't shared that with him. This is like, this is like a confession. I, I, I think I'm a runner. There, there's this change that happens. See, this is kind of the picture that Paul's trying to paint for us here. He's, he uses this analogy in his letters a lot, this idea of walking, this idea of progressing in our relationship, in our identity as Christians within the Christian life. It's kind of the picture he's trying to paint. And so as, as we continue to walk with Christ, we begin to find ourselves being shaped into the image of Christ. And into one, we find ourselves being shaped into one who lives for Jesus today until we can live with him tomorrow. And as we walk with God, and as we're shaped into the image of God, all of a sudden, we begin to look different. We begin to think different, don't we? Different than we used to before. And so the way that we act, the, the way that we view life, the way that we answer some of the big questions of life, all of a sudden are different than they were before. They're different than the way that the world might answer those questions. And all of a sudden, this gap starts to form. Remember we talked about gaps last week? And this gap starts to form between where we were and where we are. And gaps, as we talked about last week, are hard, aren't they? People struggle with the gaps. Because we don't like the gaps that form in our lives sometimes. Because sometimes the gap that's forming is, I feel like there's a gap between where I am and where my neighbor is. And as this gap starts to take shape, as we become more in the image of Christ and less like the world, as this gap increases, we can, we can feel this pull. This pull to become, well, I have to stay relevant. 
I, I have to conform to what the world had. I'm losing touch. But then there's this other pull that says, I need you to be shaped into the image of Christ. More and more so shaped into the image of Christ. And sometimes we feel like we're stuck in the middle. We wrestle with this in different areas of our lives. And so Paul knows that this is taking place in Thessalonica. And so he, he, he offers words of reassurance on this. But as he does so, as he offers words of reassurance, he does so by using a timeless example. A timeless example that the Thessalonians and us experience a gap in, in our lives here. Here's what he says, starting in verse 3. He says, it is God's will that you are to be sanctified. It's the reassuring command. This is supposed to happen. It's God's will that you be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual morality. That each of you should learn to control your own bodies in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins. As we have told you and we've warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction that Paul just highlighted here, anyone who rejects this instruction is not rejecting a human being. They're not rejecting the wisdom of the world. They're not rejecting what their neighbor thinks, but they are instead they are rejecting the very God who gave you his Holy Spirit. Now, as Paul brings up this example, that we don't really have any evidence that there was a rampant issue with sexual morality taking place in this church at this time. I think the reason he uses this example is because it so keenly illustrates what he's trying to point out. You see, remember, the Thessalonians used to be pagan idol worshippers. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, you used to worship you used to be pagan worshipers of idols, but now you've turned to the living true God. That's chapter 1, verse 9. That's how they were known and how they are now known. And all of a sudden, things changed. When they went from worshiping idols to worshiping the living true God, things changed, including, in this example, their view and their standard for sexual activity. You see, the pagans had a very low view of this. A very low standard when it, when it came to this. A any teachings or any standards that said, no, chastity is the way. Or, or, or any, anything that said, no, monogamy is, is the way was considered irrational. Because even within the pagan style of worship, premarital sexual activity was considered a form of worship. For many of these Greek gods, it was part of the way that they worshipped. And so it was irrational to ask for a higher standard of these things. You're actually interfering with their means of worship. Uh, one of the prime examples of this was the temple of Aphrodite, the, the goddess of love that was just down the road from Athens in, in Corinth. And it famously is known as being this temple that had over a thousand temple prostitutes. It, it was part of the way that they worshipped. And so Paul is holding up this as an activity that said, this is what the pagans, this is what the world says about this. But God has a higher standard. God has a higher view, and as Paul would have taught them at this point through the word of God and through God's revelation to him, that God's view of, of sexual activity was that it was to be an expression of love within the boundaries of marriage between one man and one woman. And the reason being is because this act of the two coming together physically as one was a sealing of the marriage covenant. It was a sealing of the sacred promises that these two people had made before God and before the world. And they would then come together as an act of sealing that covenant. That's what we talk about when it's consummated. When we consummate something, we are making perfect. We are completing the promises that we had made to one another. 
And that's what that act was to be reserved for and saved for. And it then became a repeated act within the bounds of the marital covenant as an act of pleasure and expression of love to renew and to reaffirm that commitment to one another. That's a different standard, isn't it? Between what the pagan worlds and what God said this is to be. There's a gap there, isn't there? And basically, Paul had taught them through the word of God that anything less than this, anything other than this, is immorality. It's to be considered sinful. And this, therefore, placed limits on the definition and the activity that they could engage in. That was very different than the world. That was very different than the previous life that they lived. It was so different that it caused many people in the community as it causes many people even within today's church to not be comfortable with that standard that God sets. It causes people to think, well, that feels too restrictive. That, that feels out of touch. That, that feels like it, it, it's, it's not loving. See, this is why Paul uses this example when he's talking about, see, the, this, isn't the, this isn't the point. This is the example. This is the example of the point he's trying to make. The point he's trying to make is that God's will is for you to be sanctified. God wants you to be sanctified. What does that word mean? It means God wants you. He knows it's going to be hard, but he wants you. He calls you to be set apart. God calls you to be set apart from the ungodly. He calls you to be made holy. He knows there's going to be a gap, but he calls you to push towards the godly away from the ungodly. He knows there's going to be a gap. And he knows that sometimes it's not easy. That sometimes when that gap starts to exist and we start to live differently or hold to a different standard, that when that happens, the world's going to tell us we're wrong. He knows at times that we'll even come under persecution, which the Thessalonians were. He even knows that even within ourselves at times when these issues come up, there's going to be feelings within us that want to pull us in a direction other than God. And not just on this issue of sexual morality. Like we know this comes up in other areas of our lives, doesn't it? We know that God has a standard for how we use our resources, that we're to be good stewards of everything he places into our hands. And yet the world has a different message that says, go not splurge. You deserve it. Now go, go, it'll make you happy. And yet God's word says, be a good steward of what I give you. We know, we know that we should be opening our Bibles regularly, daily, and reading the Word of God. And like, I just can't find time. And yet, and yet we seem to be able to find time for hours of social media. We know that we should be together in a church community and regularly come together for worship and fellowship. We, we know we should do that. But sometimes they schedule football games at 11 in the morning. And we feel this tension. We know that we're prone to certain types of temptation, and yet we don't always monitor what we watch on TV and the Internet. That can lead to temptation. There's many areas of life where this comes up. Where God's word says one thing and the world says another thing. There's many areas this comes up. There's many places we experience this tension between the world and the word. Isn't there? And how do we resolve the tension? We resolve the tension by aligning with one or the other. And here's the thing. Whichever one you align with, you are granting authority to in your lives. Paul talked about this to the church in Galatia. When he said this to them, he described it this way by saying, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. They cannot coexist with each other. They are in conflict with each other. Therefore, 
You are not to do whatever you want. There are two worlds vying for your allegiance. You are not to simply do whatever you want. Every day we face activities and desires and worldviews that will be causing us to choose between the flesh and between the spirit. And the question really boils down to this. When the world and the word disagree, which one will you align with? When the world and the word disagree, which one will you align with? God's will for you, verse 3. God's will is for you to be sanctified, for you to be set apart, for you to become holy. That's the standard that he has set. And that standard, according to God, is not to be set by the world. And that standard is not to be set by our feelings. It is set by God because he is the one who is holy. And he says, be holy as I am holy. And so when the question comes down to who will you align yourself with, the word or the world, the answer to the question is found in John, 15, uh, John 14, 15, where Jesus said this, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll obey me. You see, when we're living a life for Jesus, we're ascribing authority to him. That means that when we take this step, and, and a lot of us have done this, most of us here are I've done this where we've made this decision, this declaration to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of our lives. And in that moment that you hear the good news of what he did for us upon the cross, paying the price for our sins and that his work upon the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty, the consequence of our sins and to bring us into right relationship with God. When you hear the good news and we receive that and we believe it, he becomes our Savior. So it means for him to become our Savior, to save us from our sin. But then, we walk with him. We give authority to him. We walk with him. And as the old song says, we trust and obey. Why? Because there's no better way. We trust and obey. And that's when he becomes the Lord. That's when he becomes the Lord. It's when every, the day that we receive him, he becomes our Savior. But every day thereafter, we choose to make him Lord. As we walk with him, choosing the word over the world. Now, for some of you, this is very challenging. I, I know for some people, this is a very challenging thing to wrestle with because you know that there's areas of your own, your own worldview, of, of your own lifestyle, where this is hitting a bit of a nerve, and, and I hope it brings you to process that a little bit and, and to be challenged by it. For others, I know it's going to be affirming because, because this is the attempt. This is the, 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 what you're striving for in your lives. But remember, the path of sanctification is this gradual walk, okay? It's this gradual walk. It's not instantaneous from, from, from being justified in Jesus to being glorified in eternity. There's this gap in the middle of, of, just, uh, of, of sanctification, of becoming gradually sanctified more and more. So we need to keep walking. I, I encourage you to keep wrestling. I encourage you to keep living for him. And when you do, you will experience really truly how good it is to trust and obey in Jesus. And as you do, you will grow in your love. And as you grow in your love, you'll grow in your commitment to follow his commands for us. And as Paul reminds the Thessalonians about this, about this, that one way that they can love Jesus is by obeying him. He, he takes it a step further as well to say, you know, this, this love that we're talking about isn't just between you and God. It actually leads to, to a, a different way of living and a different way of loving in the world as well. And here's what he continues in in verse 9, to build upon this. He says, now about your love for one another. We, we don't need to write to you about this, he says. You know, for you yourselves have been taught 
by God to, to love each other. And in fact, you, you guys are. You, you do love all of God's family throughout the whole, through Macedonia, like the whole area of, of Greece there. And yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Remember week one, we talked about this a bit, how the Thessalonians were known for loving and living for Jesus. They, they loved all those who, who, who had the similar beliefs and were on the same faith journey as them. And, and, and that sort of constituted the family of God. And, and they were known throughout all the different churches, throughout the family of God, as being those who loved one another, the brothers and sisters in Christ. This type of love we're talking about here is, is what's referred to at times as, as phileo love, this, this brotherly love, which has kind of two aspects. Well, the first aspect is that it's this common affection for all brothers and sisters. So common affection for everybody, you know, who we have this sort of a peer relationship with in, in spirit, right? But, but there's another aspect to this, sometimes we forget, is that how do we become brothers and sisters? Is by having the same father, by having the same heavenly fathers is how we do that. And so, so that's one thing we share in common. And this is a common way that Paul uses to, to refer to and how to apply this idea of love is this, this brotherly love, this love for the brothers and sisters in the faith. But, but we should never see that as a limit or as a barrier to how far-reaching this love can be. It's, it's sort of where the love initially resides, but it's not the limits to how far-reaching that can be. Uh, this week I was thinking about this analogy of this love of God, and I, I don't know if you'll relate to me on this one, but I, I, thought, I thought it kind of visualized it. Like if I had, I was going to actually demonstrate it for you, but I have to get a mop. It's kind of messy, so I'll just tell you. If I had a 12-ounce can of Coke up here and a 12-ounce glass, they should, I should be able to pour the Coke into the glass, right? And it'll fit. Is it going to fit? If it was 12 ounces of water, it would fit, right? Just 12 ounces of 12. It would fit. But, it's, but if it wasn't for that fizzy stuff in there, right? Now, we've all done this. When you pour the can into the glass, the volume of liquid, that works. But you got that fizzy stuff in there. And all of a sudden, it's going to overflow the glass. And it's not going to overflow the glass. It's going to overflow the table. And as it overflows, doesn't it get everyone's attention? If you're at a table at a restaurant and you pour that glass and it overflows to the table, everyone sits up and takes notice, don't they? And if you have enough, it can even go onto the floor or to the table beside you. Everyone takes notice when that overflows because we, got that, we, get, we get that fizzy love of God that's it's kind, of, it's kind of overflowing our hearts and it impacts those all around us, right? And it seems that this is something that was needed to be given instruction within the church that Paul's writing to here. Because Paul, he addresses a few issues of how this love is or is not being experienced in the world around them as they live for Jesus. You know, it seems here internally, let's go through this very quickly, internally it seems like there was some people who were living to please God, the way that they were doing that was not pleasing their brothers and sisters. You see, some people for whatever reason had decided that, hey, if I'm in the community, if, if I'm in the family, I, I don't need to work. I, I, can, I can just spend my time that I've freed up by not working, getting into other people's business and kind of helping them out with their lives and, and stirring up trouble. Maybe, you, maybe you're like me and you had an older brother who once moved into your basement and didn't leave, didn't have a job, and then felt it took it upon himself to tell you how to raise your kids. That doesn't bring harmony. <laughs> that doesn't bring unity to the family unit. That leaves you going, hey, when are you leaving? 
When you're moving out, when we have these things happening within the family, it tends to upset the unity, the harmony, and it erodes love. And so Paul says this in verse 11. He says, live yourselves a quiet life. Uh, not a quiet life where you're passive. Again, it's not about passivity. It's about living a life that doesn't stir up trouble within the family. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands. Provide for yourself. Contribute something. Contribute to supporting the family. Support the love and the growth and the unity of the family. There's some who weren't doing that. So he calls them out in verse 11 on that. And he gives another reason as to why. Because he wants this love to be lived out, this love that overflows. He wants it to be lived out within the body because there are those outside of the body who are watching. There are those outside of the body who know that, that the Thessalonians are living differently. They don't believe the same things we believe. They don't, they don't hold the same standards that we hold. And so, and so those outside are watching inside and they're curious they're curious to know, does, does what they believe actually work? Does the way that they live actually bring them more joy and contentment in their lives? Are they experiencing something that I'm not, something that I want and that I need in my life? And so in verse 12, he says, live these quiet lives. Why? Because the outcome of living and loving in this fashion is that your daily life lived for Jesus will be an incredible witness to others, to the power and the presence and the reality of Jesus. See how that works? And so throughout this process of sanctification, we experience the blessing of living in the truth of Jesus Christ and our love for him grows and overflows to others. And this in itself, if this was the end of what we're going to talk about today, if this was the end of it, that in itself would make it worthwhile to do, wouldn't it? Because we would have this overflow of love for each other that would reach to others, and that would be an amazing community to be in. And that in itself makes it worthwhile. But what he gets to next is so amazing. Because as amazing as, as living in community together now for Jesus, nothing compares to where he goes to. Because now he talks about the anticipation we have of living with Jesus. He, he, he draws our attention to that glorious day at the end of the way. You see, for the rest of the chapter here, Paul responds to a situation taking place in Thessalonica that was causing some confusion about this. See, they, they knew there was a promise that Jesus would return one day. And, and they, kind of like you know, people for the last 2,000 years, have been saying things like, any day now. Could be, could be today. Could be today. Could be coming back today. And it's true. It's true, but it hadn't happened yet. And while they were waiting for this imminent return, some of their loved ones, some of their brothers and sisters that they loved in community had died. And it led them to ask a question. It led them to ask the question, Paul, how does this work? Like, we were told that when Jesus comes back, we would see him, we'd be with him, but, but John died last week. He loved the Lord. Is he going to be a part of that great day? Or... Did he miss out? Did, did we miss out on something? And so Paul begins describing this great day of the Lord here, where he says this in verse 13, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you, who, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. See, when anyone dies, when anyone passes, it, it's a sad time of grief for, for all people. Whether you're a believer or not, it, it's a hard thing to go through. But again, just as there are different standards between the world 
and God when it came to, to sexual activity, so too in how the view of death existed. See, for the pagans, they believed that death was the end, that there was, there was little to no hope for anything at all beyond when you close your eyes and take your last breath. And we even see evidence of that upon tombstones from this area where, where they would inscribe, if there was anything marking a grave at all, they would inscribe the name, the date of birth, and that'd be it. That's it. They were born, they lived, end of story. But Christians, uh, Christians who had lived for Jesus, there's a different belief there. There is a belief that when we closed our eyes on earth, we would awaken to new life with Jesus. And that's why Paul says we're not to grieve like the pagans do because we have hope. We have an incredible hope. Therefore, death is not the end. Death is not final. Death is more like sleeping. And when you went to sleep last night, I I don't think many of us went to sleep last night with fear, did we? No, we went to sleep thinking, I need this rest because I'm going to wake up the next day. And that allows you to lay down and close your eyes in peace because of this incredible hope and confidence that you will awaken the next day. That's how Christians view death, as a second birth. And we start to see that this led to a tradition on Christian gravestones of this area, where they would place the birth date, but they would also begin placing the date of death. Not because to celebrate the death, but to celebrate a second birth that would take place. Such an example is is in uh, this tombstone here. I think I have a picture of that's up here on the screen. And and we know that this is a Christian tombstone from the time because at the top there, they identify it with a symbol. There's an alpha and an omega symbol on the left and the right. In the middle, there's the chi-ro symbol. Remember what chi-ro stands for? You're here at Christmas time? Chi-ro, the X. It's a it's an abbreviation form of Jesus Christ, the the chi-ro symbol. So we know that this is a Christian tombstone. And on the bottom, it has the date of birth and the date of death, which in this case was August 4th, was the date of death. And the inscription says, it says, Victors, who lived nine years, so just a child, uh, somebody's daughter had passed. Victors, who lived nine years, she rests in peace and she rests in Christ. This is a tradition that started to happen because there's belief that when you close your eyes, it's not the end, it's not final. There's an incredible hope. And Paul gives them assurance that victors and all others who have fallen asleep are not forgotten. That when they closed their eyes, when they closed their eyes and they took their final breath, what seemed like the small gap between the breath, and they'd awaken in the presence of Christ. And then in vivid language, after reassuring them that those who have passed on would not miss out on anything, in vivid language, he explains how this great day of the Lord will come to take place. In verse 15, where he says, According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven, and with a loud command, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive will be left, and are left, will be caught up with them together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with our Lord forever. Therefore, encourage everyone, encourage everyone, Encourage everyone in the moment where, when, when you're like, how can I go on? Is there anything beyond this? Encourage everyone. When you've lost a loved one who lived for Christ, and they go, what's next? Encourage everyone. 
that this great day of the Lord will come to take place. This day that the, of the Lord that Paul's referring to here is what we sometimes use the, the phrase uh, rapture to refer to. You, you won't find the word rapture in your Bible, but you will find it. In the, it comes from the Latin Vulgate, the, Vulgate, the Latin version of the Bible where this word rapture exists. And basically, it's a word that refers to when Jesus calls all Christians alive and asleep away from earth to himself. Now, there's incredible debates that take place about the exact timing and, and, you know, and how and when and things like that. But here's something that's very clear about this, is that it will be an incredible event. It will be an absolutely incredible event that takes place for all who live for Jesus because they will be united with Jesus. And when that takes place, we're told here that there will be this loud command that is heard throughout heaven and throughout earth. We don't know, we don't know who's going to make the command. We, we don't know what the words that command are going to be. Uh, some think maybe it's going to be Jesus himself, and, you know, similar to when he stood before the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus emerged and was with Jesus. Some think it might be something like that. Others think it might be the, the archangel Michael who will come down and make this declaration and command. You know, if it is the angel, I don't think it's going to be like Christmas. You know, Christmas when the angels show up and, ah, and they're over top of the shepherds and it's this silent, holy night. No, I think it will be a bold, strong, come up kind of command that the entire world will not be able to ignore. And if that wasn't enough, it says here it will be accompanied by trumpets. This, this, this company of trumpets that will cause the world to stop in their tracks as these regal notes play out, pronouncing the arrival of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And in that instant, those who were asleep, it says they will rise up first and receive their glorified bodies. And they will be with Jesus forever in that glorified state. And then those of us who are still alive, we're going to have a moment while it takes, we're going to have a moment to grasp what's taking place. And in that moment, when I get to pause for a second and go, this is it, this is the minute. This is the moment I'm waiting for. I hope it's a day I have a dentist appointment. Or I, I, I hope it's a day I have like a tax audit or something. Because I'm like, I'm out of here. Because I'm not going. Right? <laughs> and I hope it's on one of those days. Because it says that we're going to be caught up in the air with them. And, and, and I don't know if that's literal or if that's metaphoric. If it's literal, it means it's going to fly up. Bye. I love dentists. Love dentists. But um, I don't want to go. Right? <laughs> going to go up. Instead, or maybe it's, maybe, it's, maybe it's figurative, maybe it's metaphoric here where it's talking about how Jesus will provide safe passage through this world that is currently ruled by the prince of, of the air, the prince of darkness, a, a safe passage through Satan's territory. Whatever it is, I'm good either way because the end result means that I will suddenly and physically be united with Jesus Christ. And I will no longer live for him today because I will live with him every day from that point on. And when that incredible day comes, you know, you know the Bible tells us? The Bible says that when we're united with Jesus Christ, there, there will be no aches and pains and illness and death. There'll be no grief and suffering and persecution. That'll all be over with. There'll be no stress or strains of life. That'll all be gone. The, uh, imagine a time with no taxes and no breakdowns of the cars and no bills and no accidents. Imagine a season where there is no fear of tornadoes or floods or earthquakes or hailstones, infestations, no crime, no fraud. And in the place of all of those things, instead we experience eternal joy as we live eternally in the place that Jesus went on ahead of us to prepare for us. And eternally we delight in the presence of God our blessed hope. As you hear these words read, as, as we describe this to you, this amazing event to you, does it fill you with joy? Does it fill you with anticipation? We're going to do that again. 
Okay? <laughs> Does it fill you with joy? Amen. Does it fill you with anticipation? Absolutely. And because of that, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But at the start of this passage we went through today, Paul serves up a rather challenging reminder that God's will is for us to be holy. God's will is for us to be sanctified in him. And that's something that those of us who want to live for Jesus will need to press into, will need to wrestle with and strive to gradually more and more every day align ourselves with Jesus in love. That's the initial call we have, but the purpose for which he does so, the purpose for which he calls us to that, as he says here at the end, the reason that he calls us to be different, to, to be of a lifestyle that others might reject, to, to live in a way that a gap might exist. The, the reason he's saying to do it is because it's worth it. It's worth it in this life in which we live today because to trust and obey there is no other way. But also because of the words that he shares, and let's leave you with these words that, that Paul wrote to Titus, where it sums up this whole lesson and this encouragement for us. Titus chapter 2, it says, The grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to all. The grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to you and to you and to you and, and to me and to everyone who's watching online. The grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to all. It teaches us to say no, to not do whatever we want. It teaches us to say no to the ungodly, worldly passions and to live self-controlled, godly lives while we wait for our blessed hope. Not passively sit back and wait, but while we actively say no, while we actively live for Christ, while we actively wait for that blessed hope, that blessed hope which is the appearing of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we actively live for Jesus today, not cloistered together in our holy huddles, not idly just waiting by, not, not being harsh with those who didn't see eye to eye with us, but may we live in a way that reveals that fizzy, overflowing love of God in word and in deed. And may we be encouraged by truth that one day we will see Jesus face to face and we will then live with him forever. And that is the blessed hope of all who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. May we live with him today until we live with him tomorrow.